There is no children's church. It's, yes, it's it is Family Sunday, family Sunday this week. So I, um, I get the privilege of preaching to you uh, on a weekend where we are focusing on missions. We had our missions fest yesterday, uh, and today we're going to continue in on that focus on missions. So I'm actually really uh, excited to, to bring um, God's word to you today. Um, but before we dive into the text, I want to delay the context and the groundwork a little bit. Like the question that I hope we answer um, as we dig into the text together, is why do we have such a passion and a focus for missions? I mean, if you just think about that word missions, missionary, it's not actually a biblical word, so why do we focus on it so much? Well, it's because it expresses this biblical idea. I'm sure we all know the Great Commission where we are to bring uh, all of the teachings of Jesus to all of the people around the earth. And the way that we do that is missions, right? Um, but instead of going through the usual, we all know the Great Commission. We all know that we have been commissioned to join into this work together. And what I wanted to do today is show you the end of missions, right? What I hope is as we dig in and see this beautiful story that God is telling and we see the end and we see how these missions are moving us towards that end, we will see this great an amazing and gloriously beautiful work that God is doing and feel a passion to join into it, right? Uh, and, and so we are going to look all the way in the back of our Bibles. We're going to be opening up Revelation again, um, but we're skipping ahead from where we were last in Revelation. Uh, so we're going to be in Revelation uh, chapter 7, the last half of it, and we're going to go into chapter 8. So what we need to do is cover, okay, we left off with the last of the letters, how, what happened in between there and now, so that you fully understand a little bit about what is going on. So I know it's going to be real quick, and I know you probably want to dig deeply into this, but we're just going to go over it today to lay the groundwork for what um, we're going to be studying in God's Word. So what happens is after the vision that John is receiving about all these letters, to all the churches, he gets taken up to the throne room of God. Uh, and, and in that throne room, uh, there seems to be an announcement. They bring out the scroll and they say, who can open the scroll? And nobody can open the scroll that John sees. And so John is distressed. He's like, can nobody open the scroll? And they tell him, it is okay, because Jesus has earned the right to open the scroll through his life death, burial, and resurrection, he can now open the scroll. And so we see the scroll open up, and in comes the end times, and all that is associated with it. We see all the tribulations that are going to come upon earth and its people, um, but after it's list this off for a while, we see a pause, and we see this interesting thing where it actually says that there is four angels on the four corners of the earth, uh, and they've been told, you cannot allow anything harm to come to the land yet until we have sealed those who are gods. And so we see that God seals, um, he seals right here the number uh, uh, 144,000, 12,000 from each tribe of Israel. 
right? So at the beginning, we see this group where God is going to do something with his uh, chosen people from Abraham's line, the Israeli people before the end times. But then we get into our reading today. So keep in mind, before any of these things can happen, God is going to seal his own. And part of sealing his own is he is going to do something special with the nation of Israel still, where he seals aside 12,000 from each tribe. And then we get to our reading today. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read it and pray, and then we're going to jump into this together. So after this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these uh, clothed in white robes, and from whom have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. Uh, And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. When the lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incest to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with the fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashings of lightning, and an earthquake. Father, as we dive into your word, I pray that you would illuminate it to us, uh, that you would show us um, what you are doing, and that you would use it to transform us, that you'd give us the same passion and the same heart for all peoples that you have, uh, and for sharing your gospel to the world that you have, and that we would see what an incredible privilege and blessing it is to be able to join into your work with you. I pray that you would use this uh, word of yours to transform us so that we are passionate followers of your son Jesus, that we are passionate sharers of the gospel and disciple makers because of your word. We pray in your son's Jesus name. Amen. All right, so why missions? Why are we so passionate about it? And I'm actually going to jump in to the middle of this text because the first reason we should be passionate about missions is kind of the most basic. 
the most obvious one, the one we've heard many times over and over. Um, but the thing is, it is good to be reminded, right? It is good to be reminded. So what I want you to do is look with me um, at chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. Uh, this is what it says real quick. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? From, from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So what I want you to see is who these people are. Now, if you haven't read it yet, earlier uh, in the chapter before, specifically um, verses 9 through 11, it talks about another group of people clothed in white. So I'm going to read that to you. You should just mark it down so you can look at it later. Uh, He said, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge the earth and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So when we see these white robes here, and then we see it in the next verse, what we're led to believe is that this is the full number. Specifically, these are those uh, martyrs for Jesus who lived during the time of the Great Tribulation. So I want you to realize that. Not only had they loved Jesus to the point that they gave their very lives for him, but they lived in this time of great suffering and tragedy and calamity. All right? But let me ask this question, this question that we should all know. How were they saved? How did they wash their robes clean? If we look here, it is only by the blood of the Lamb is only by the blood of Jesus. My point is this. No matter how well they lived, no matter how much they gave up, they were saved only through and because and for Jesus, through his sacrifice. You see, the, the, the reason that we are so passionate about missions is because we can go back all the way to the Tower of Babylon, uh, Babel and beyond, and we see human beings try to repair the mistake we made in the fall on our own efforts. We try to build a tower to heaven, and that fails. We try to make ourselves righteous. We try to offer all these rituals and other things. And honestly, we ran out of ideas thousands of years ago, and we keep trying the same ones over and over and over again. But the truth is this. We cannot save ourselves. In fact, on our own, we are without hope. We have screwed things up so badly and we can never make it right before God. But that's not the end of the story. You see, God himself, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, Jesus, stepped into humanity. From that moment on, he was both fully God and fully human. He lived the perfect life we could never live. He died and took our punishment in our place. Then he rose again, offering all of us eternal life if we follow him. This is the good news of the gospel. This is why we do missions, because where we were without hope, we now have the greatest hope. I think about um, the, the verse that prophesied about Jesus coming, where in darkness they saw a great light, right? And that, that's talking about Jesus coming to Bethlehem, but the great light, can, 
light continued on until every corner of the earth, even the darkest crevices, experienced the light of the hope of the gospel. That is what missions is about, is taking this hope and this light and this gospel to every single place, to every single person. Why are we so passionate? I know this is basic and we've talked about it every time, but let's remind ourselves. We're so passionate about missions because this is such a great hope. And how cruel, how much would we have to hate people not to do everything we could to bring this great hope and this great life to those who don't have it yet? Right? I know we get asked that question all the time, so maybe it's lost some of our meaning, but let's let it have meaning again. This is such a great hope and you are in such despair without it that how could we not bring the gospel by any means necessary to all places possible? This is why we are passionate about missions if we are followers of Jesus. But let's go back to the beginning of the text because this is not the only reason that we are passionate about missions. Uh, If we look where we began our readings, I'm going to read once again verses 9 through 12. So go ahead and turn that. Read along with me. It says this. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne of the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb And all the angels were standing around the throne and all the elders and and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. This is the martyrs during the time of the tribulation. And what does God say about them? There are Followers of Jesus, there are martyrs from every single nation, from every single people who speak every single language. This is an amazing, glorious picture uh, of what the family as God is going to be. But what I want to do is I want to show you guys what this looks like. What does it mean that the gospel is going to go to all nations and all people? Because as soon as Jesus died and rose again and the Holy Spirit came upon his followers, the gospel has not ceased to advance in the world. It is spreading from person to person to peoples to peoples to language to language to nation to nation. It has not stopped. No matter how dark the history of Christianity may be, the gospel keeps advancing. So I want to show this video, and I want you guys to see what this looks like. This is um, a visual representation of that advance.
get goosebumps every time I watch that. It doesn't matter how dark it gets in the world, the gospel will not be stopped. It will not be stopped from advancing until it reaches every people, place, and tongue, every culture. And we get to be a part of that. And if you've seen this map, you've seen how much the gospel has advanced just in some of our lifetimes. We are within a seeing distance of the finish line. We may in our lifetimes get to see every tongue have a Bible, every people group have a church. Every person can know and hear about Jesus. This is why we are passionate about missions because this is the greatest work that the history of the world has ever seen and God has let us be a part of it. That is why I am passionate. That is why we are passionate about missions. We see this right here, that before the throne of God, we have followers of Jesus who so loved him that they gave their lives for him. From every single people who speak every single language. What an amazing, beautiful, glorious picture. Christianity is the only truly global religion. You look at all the other religions in the world, they may be spreading, they may be growing, but they're not advancing across people groups and language barriers like Christianity is because at the end of the day, they're not true. At the end of the day, what advances this is not human effort, but the power of God and his gospel. But he invites us into that work anyways, and we get to be a part of it. I don't want you to just see numbers and in in, in this colors blurring across the map. I want you to think of from the beginning till now, person to person to person to person. This is how the gospel spreads as they go about their own lives. Yes, sometimes we send people as missionaries, but most of this advance has happened by people living their normal lives. If you traced it as it went east at first, it was following the Silk Road because people who were going about their daily lives spread the gospel. As it receded, the Silk Road disappeared. We see this as it spread across the world through trade routes and other things. The gospel spreads from person to person by ordinary means as Christians faithfully live their lives, and it is advancing. But there are places still unreached, so that is why we send missionaries, because we don't want anyone to not have the opportunity to hear the gospel. But I want to challenge us on this too, because the thing about the gospel, it is both equally at home and equally unat home in every single culture. What I mean by this is cultures are made of people. Human beings are affected by the fall, all of them, which means every culture has sin corrupting them, but every culture has people made in the image of God in them, right? That means there's not one culture that is somehow more Christian than another culture. Each culture is equally fallen. Each culture is going to be eventually redeemed by Jesus. And that is the picture we get here. We get a picture of this parade of peoples and nations and tongues bringing the best of what they have, the best of what they need, and bringing it and offering it at the feet of God. We see every single language and tongue worshiping our God. You see, um, what I think we might struggle with when we 
when we tend to view uh, one culture as being more Christian than the another, it is we tend to make one of two errors, right? We either think that um, our own culture is somehow better than every other culture because we're more Christian, uh, and therefore others are lesser, or we make the opposite mistake and say, okay, our culture is inherently worse, and we elevate another culture to a point that kind of idolizes it. We see that a lot with the early church, for instance. We say, oh, if only we were like the early church, right? And I love the early church. They are brothers and sisters of ours, right, who came before us, and we can learn a lot. But if you have this view of the early church as this is the ideal, you're not reading the New Testament, right? The same thing happens with the, with the global church. If you think America is the beacon of Christianity and that we are bringing America to the rest of the world and it's good for them because that means bringing Christianity, you neither understand America or Christianity correctly. All right, let that sink in. On the other hand, if you view the global church as somehow this beacon that America is the worst possible out there and that we need to learn from this perfect ideal in the global church, then you neither understand America, the global church, or Christianity. All right? There are no ideals yet. God is perfecting every people and every place, but we're not there yet. Right? This is important because until we realize this, I don't think we can fully appreciate the beauty. Because part of what the end of missions brings is every culture and people and tongue bringing their best. And it has been refined and purified by the power of the gospel, and it is before God. In other words, what we were supposed to be before the fall, we now get to be. Isn't that amazing? And not only is it amazing, not only do we get to be a part of that, I mean, just think that for a second. Through our prayers, through our money, through our even going maybe, we can bring a whole people, we can be a part of bringing a whole people and tongue and culture into this room. Think about that. I always think about eternity and sitting down and God walking us through. It's like, because of you, because of your church, this whole people, this whole nation, this whole tongue worships me. How amazing is that? And we get to be a part of it. But not only that, not only do we get to be a part of it, but God is worth this. He deserves every people, every tongue at the end of time worshiping him. He is so glorious and Jesus has sacrificed so much. We do this because we think that Jesus is worth it. We think he is worth having every culture in his family. We think he is worth it to be worshipped in every tongue. And it brings completeness to the body of Christ. You know, when I last was up here preaching, we talked in Ephesians how there were two people that God has now made one people. There is now one body. There is now one temple. There is now one family, right? These are the images in Ephesians. In, uh, in Revelation, you get another image, that of the bride of Christ, because you get this celebratory feasting uh, image that is giving to us. And why is this important? Because the complete and full bride of Christ, the complete and full body of Christ, the complete and full temple of God is made up of every people, tongue, nation, 
And until it is there, it is not the full body of Christ yet. Not fully, not the one it will be in the celebration. We get to be a part of bringing completion and wholeness to Christ's bride, to Christ's church, his body, his temple, his family. We get to be a part of that work. There's one more reason that we are so passionate about missions in this text uh, that I want to bring up to you. There's millions more reasons, but in this text, I want to bring out one more reason. So I'm going to read um, from verse 7, 15 through 17. So it says this, Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall no Uh, hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eye. So the last reason I'm just going to give you up front, it is because we get to be a part of bringing Jesus's justice to the world. Now you may be reading this and wonder, what are you talking about Justice. What do you mean there? When we think of God and justice, a lot of times we think like the plagues and the wrath and everything else punishing evil. Um, We separate in our mind God's justice and his loving care. And what we see here, we think this is his loving care. But that is our problem. (laughs) It is not what the Bible is communicating. And what I mean is this. There is no love without justice and no justice without love. God's love and his justice do not compete against each other. In fact, I would go so far as to say they are the same. When God acts justly, he is loving us. When he acts loving, he is acting justly on our account. Now, in order to see where I'm getting that from the text, we've got to understand the context again. Who are these people he's providing his tender care to? They're the ones who went through the tribulation, the martyrs. A lot of times I think we struggle with this idea of God's justice in our culture because we have insulated ourselves from the full weight of evil. We haven't felt its effects. But if you ask people in a war-turned country, people who are, have to live every day worried that they may literally lose their lives for being a Christian, and this idea isn't separated so much. They see the full brunt of evil, and they know in order for God to be a fully loving God, he also has to be a just God. Justice has to be done or it is unloving. And so what we see here, we see the martyrs, when he brings it out, he goes, God, when will you bring about your justice? And he says, in a little while, not till the full measure of your brothers are here. But God's justice isn't just revenge. It is about bringing a just world where he rules justly over us. One where, we, where the martyrs sit in the very temple of God and he takes care of them and he protects them and he makes sure they no longer hunger or thirst or are threatened. You see, justice brings peace. Justice brings healing. Justice brings reconciliation. On the other extreme, though, I think a lot of times when we engage in this work of bringing justice to places, we don't do it fully. In other words, we're engaged in all these good causes, 
right? We're engaged in advocating against warfare. We're engaged in reconciling peoples to each other. All of this is good work that we can be involved in, but we do it on their own without also bringing the gospel. But that's kind of like treating a gut shot with a Band-Aid, right? It doesn't work. See, all these papering over the problems of the world don't get to the root problem, and that is we are fallen people who without God's regeneration commit evil against each other again and again and again. I'm reminded of a verse all the way in Jeremiah, which you can uh, write down to read later. It comes from Jeremiah 6, 13 uh, through 14, and he's talking about the prophets and the priests of Israel, and he says, everyone from prophets to priests deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. When we talk all about the gospel of God and his loving, tender care, and we don't talk about the seriousness of sin, the consequences of evil, and how he corrects that through his justice, we are dealing with the wounds of fallen people lightly. We're saying peace, peace, when there is no peace. Yes, Jesus brings healing and comfort and forgiveness of sins when we repent and follow him, right? We cannot have one without the other, but we get to be a part of bringing true justice to the world. All the other types of justice are good. Stopping a war is a great thing. Um, bringing food to the hungry is a great thing, but it's all temporary. You see, people who are hungry will be hungry again. People who stop fighting will fight again. All of this is temporary, right? Not that it's not good to, to, to engage in that work, but we need to be working towards ultimate satisfaction of hunger, ultimate peace, ultimate healing of wounds, and that is only done through the gospel. And the thing is, we get to be a part of that. We get to help bring true justice and true peace and true reconciliation. That is an incredible amazing privilege. But we're not done with this verse yet. The reason that I went on into chapter 8, and I'm going to read it again for you, is because I want you to remember something. In this work, the greatest thing that we can do to advance the gospel, to advance the cause of missions, to get to this bridal feast that we see in Revelations is prayer. This is a strange scene, and I want to read it, and I want to let us sit in the strangeness for a little bit, and then I want to show you what is going on here. So it says, When the Lamb, when Jesus, opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. There is silence in heaven. What is about to happen is incredibly serious and somber. It says, Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayer of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashings of lightning, and an earthquake. It's kind of a weird scene until we dig into it a little more. 
what is going on here is this, la- this seal is opened up, and then they bring this sensor, which is, um, I don't know how to describe it fully, but it have this fire, right, where you burn incense, and with the incense are the prayers of all the saints. And then the effects of all these saints' prayers going up before God with incense is that it is then taken with the fire and hurled at earth and caused lightning and thunder and an earthquake. In effect, what is going on is all of the prayers of the saints, so that's all, throughout all time, all prayers from all saints are taken up here, and it seems like this is where they reach their ultimate conclusion. Now, if you guys have spent time praying with God, you're like, well, I never prayed for uh, my prayer to be hurled at the earth and cause thunder and lightning and an earthquake, right? This seems strange to me. But we've got to understand, if we truly think about our prayers at their heart, what they are is a struggle in a fallen world, right? How did Jesus teach us to pray? That God's kingdom come, that his will be done. In other words, that justice comes, that the end comes, that God restores and renews the earth. And he does that at this time. This is what Revelation is about. Yes, he purifies it with fire, um, but that's because the fallen world, the fallenness of it has to be utterly destroyed before true justice can come. And so all of our prayers go up to this moment. Not a single one of your prayers that you have ever uttered as a believer in Jesus gets dropped. Every single one of them get picked up and heard by God, and everyone reaches this ultimate conclusion. And that is that the earth is restored, that God ushers in this new age, and that his saints are with him, fully purified. Think about that for a second. Every single one of our prayers, yes, they may have immediate answers to our prayers, but the ultimate aim of these prayers is this. It is the conclusion of the Great Commission. It is reaching all nations, all peoples, all tongues. It is restoring what was broken in the fall. Through our prayers, we get to be a part of that. Every single one of our prayers. Not one gets unheard, not one gets dropped. All reach their conclusion. And and, and so that should change us. What the Bible says about prayer is It's amazing. Somehow we get to be involved in this great work, but also it says, because of Jesus, we have boldness to enter the throne room of God. So when we pray, what we should think about is a father who has adopted us that we are praying to. And Jesus, who is our brother right next to him, interceding on our behalf saying, this one is mine. Let's listen to his prayers. And not only that, because we all know we stumble with our own words and prayers and don't always pray what we truly want. We have the Holy Spirit who takes our prayers and intercedes and translates them for, the, for us so that what God receives, the Father receives, is what we truly need, and that reaches its ultimate conclusion here. So what I want to leave us is a challenge, okay? One, Just so you know, by the way, ever since I have been a pastor here, I've been praying for each of our students and each of you that God would raise out of them missionaries who would go into foreign parts and bring the gospel. That is my prayer for you, your families, and your children. And this is why, right? Um, But our challenge for you, 
even if you don't yet feel the call to go overseas, although I hope many of you do feel that call, uh, is that you feel the importance of prayer and that this week you will pray by yourselves and together for God to accomplish his purpose to bring all people to him and that he will accomplish it through us, whatever that means, whether sharing the gospel with your neighbor or sharing the gospel to your new neighbors as you move to a different country, right? Or helping send someone else to a new land to share the gospel. But I pray, my challenge to you is to start taking this prayer seriously this week. How would that change us if we committed to every day, just for 10 minutes, praying for God to accomplish his purpose, to bring every people, nation, and tongue into his kingdom. That's my challenge, and I am going to end it there with that challenge as we pray and continuing our worship together. So, Father, I just want to thank you for this amazing privilege to join you in your gospel work. I pray that you would continue to work on our hearts and minds together as a church, as a family, um, that we would be sensitive to this work you've called us to, that we would see opportunities that you've given us already all around us, and that we would take seriously the, the call to share your gospel, not just with those who we are familiar with and comfortable with, but those who we are uncomfortable with, those who are not like us, whether in culture or primary language or nationality. Because you have made what was separate into one new family for your son. Thank you, Father. Amen.